So, at home in my garden, I have um, one of those really large trampolines. It's about sort of 10 feet in diameter. I made it about three or four years ago when um, uh, we first had our boys. And one of the things that my children love to do is for me to go on that trampoline with them and for them to jump on me and sit on me so that I'm kind of flat on the net, looking down at the ground, and I can't move. I'm sort of paralyzed in that instance. And the only way that I can sort of get myself out of that situation is literally to throw my children off of me and to, to stand up and to be ready for them to come at me again to stop them from pushing me over. Now, you might be sitting there uh, thinking, this guy's got some really weird openings to his sermons. I mean, last time he spoke about going to watch football at Carrow Road. This, this time he's talking about trampolines. But there is a point to that picture, because this text today is really about us making a choice to be Christians that either stand up and are ready for a fight, or we're going to be Christians that are laid flat on the ground, paralyzed and unable to do anything. This text today is about us making the choice to follow what Paul simply says in the first two verses of this section, where he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And if we do this and we listen to what Paul is saying and we act upon this, we will be that Christian that's able to stand and be ready for a fight. If we don't listen to this, we don't follow it and we don't do it, we will be that Christian that's laid flat on the ground, paralyzed and unable to move forward. So in considering these first two verses, Paul says to start off, doesn't he, finally, my brethren. So this is uh, the part of this book where he's entering into the final section of this letter to these Ephesian believers. And this, this quite remarkable letter that we've been going through for the last few months where we've learned about redemption in the blood of Christ. We've learned about how we enter into that salvation through faith. We've learned about election in Christ, inheritance in Christ. We've learned about what it means to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. And in typical Paul style, he ends this letter on a very weighty subject, which is spiritual warfare. And in summary, what he's saying in these first two verses is, look, guys, you've been given a position in Jesus Christ, and I want you, by faith, to be strong in that position that you would know that the Spirit of Jesus Christ is in you and will work in you and will work through you. You will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might if you do that. But not only that, he says in verse 11, put on the whole armour of God. In other words, he's saying, put on what's been provided for you in Christ for your defence. In a nutshell, he's saying, listen... You need to take a stand and put on the armour of God. Remember that. Take a stand and put on the armour of God. 
Why? Well, because they have an enemy. They have an adversary. And he names him in verse 11 when he says, the devil. And the Greek word there is slanderer or accuser. And he says, look, you have a slanderer and you have an accuser who is out to get every single one of you. And his methods in doing that are very deceitful, very uh, perverse, in a very trickery kind of way. That's what it means by wiles there. So therefore you must take a stand and put on the whole armour of God. And Paul's intention in giving this summary in verses 10 and 11 was not just for these Ephesian believers, but it was for every single believer that would come after this time. Every individual, every married couple, every family, every church fellowship, every generation of believers, this exhortation is for. Why? Because as we'll see, the devil is still very much working now as he was back then. Therefore, you must take a stand and put on the whole armour of God. But there's another intention that Paul has in this text. And that is that the way that these first two verses are written and also the way the rest of the text is written, it's written in a way to stop Christians in their tract. It's written in a way to stop those Christians in their tract who believe that the devil doesn't exist, who think this kind of spiritual warfare is just nonsense. It's written in a way to stop those Christians in their tract who think they don't need to learn anything about spiritual warfare anymore. The way this is written is written to challenge us, to make us have to wrestle with this doctrine, to let it set itself in our hearts again, for our hearts to be reformed so that we can walk in spiritual warfare in fruitfulness. And when I was preparing this message, I really felt like the Holy Spirit wanted to really impress that point, that there may be some Christians in here who don't believe the devil exists, that believe that spiritual warfare is just kind of a fairy tale. Or there may be Christians in here who think, I've got nothing to learn about this. I'm a spiritual warrior, man. I know it all. But I want to encourage you, or challenge you, I should say, if you feel that way this morning. Paul said these two verses in the New Testament, they should be coming up on the screen. He said in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. And then in Galatians 6, 3, he says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What's Paul saying there? He's saying you must always remain humble about doctrinal truth. You can never think that you've got there with any real doctrinal truth this side of heaven. So therefore, brothers, sisters, please listen to what the Spirit of God wants to say today. Let this word set in your heart and be changed from the inside out, because I really believe that he wants to do that. So what we're going to see as we go through this text is Paul is going to unpack this idea of what it means to take a stand and put on the whole armour of God. And we're going to see three things. The first thing 
we're going to see in verse 12, where we're going to see that we put on the armor of God and we take a stand fruitfully by knowing our enemy. Then in verses 13 to 17, we're going to see that we take a stand and put on the armor of God fruitfully by walking in warfare wisely. And then lastly, in verses 18 and 19, we're going to see that we take a stand and put on the whole armor of God fruitfully by not just thinking about ourselves, but thinking about the whole church. So let's start off in verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, we have to remember that these Ephesian believers were probably second, third, or maybe even fourth generation believers. They were the second, third, or fourth generation to believe in Jesus Christ after the initial apostles and the initial followers of Jesus. And they did not have the Bible the way that we have it. They didn't have the New Testament. They did not all own a Bible like we did. And also, they were about to come up to a time when they were going to be severely persecuted by the Roman authorities over them and even Jewish authorities in their cities and towns where they lived in the region of Ephesus. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, look guys, you are going to come up against a time now where you're going to suffer greatly. People are going to do not nice things to you. People are not going to like you in the places where you live. But you need to know a very important truth. Listen, what you wrestle with, as he says there, what you battle with is not those people that are doing that to you. You don't battle against flesh and blood. There's something else that you battle in, where he says, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers, against spiritual hosts. And when he uses those words, he's thinking of an authority structure, a bit like in an army. You know, in an army, you've got a commander, you've got generals, you've got sergeants, you've got lieutenants. He's thinking of this authority structure. This authority structure is spiritual because it's in the heavenly places. It is of darkness and it is wicked. It is evil. It is everything that's immoral, everything that's sinful. So what is he thinking of here? Well, this is where we go back, need to go back to some basic theology. The Bible teaches, brothers and sisters, that in the beginning, God created everything good. And in the beginning, he created an angelic order. He created spiritual beings that were made to worship him and do things for him in the universe. And there was a particular angel called Lucifer who was in charge of all the angels. And sometime between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, this angel, Lucifer, rebelled against God. Sin was found in his heart. He became proud. And he wanted to, in a sense, take over the universe. But of course, God had none of that. And God kicked Lucifer, who became Satan, out of heaven. And when he did that, Satan took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion, and they became evil demons. And since that time, 
Satan, as we well know, has had an influence in creation. So much so that in John chapter 12, verse 31, he's called the ruler of the world with a small r. Uh, he's called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world with a small g. And what Satan has been doing ever since he fell is he's been wanting to influence people, people's hearts. And he influences those who are unbelievers and those who are believers. For unbelievers, it's very easy what Satan does. He just simply blinds them to the truth that's found in Jesus Christ in the gospel, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. But also, for believers, the way he works is a bit more subtle, and there's more ways than just the one. Firstly, he is a liar. Remember that, Satan is a liar. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he's called the father of lies. And he will lie to you about God. He will lie to you about the Bible. He will lie to you about who you are in Jesus Christ. You see that clearly, the way he tempted Eve in the beginning. Satan is also an accuser of Christians. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says that he's the accuser of the brethren. So what he does is he will accuse you of sins that you've uh, repented of and been forgiven of. He will accuse you of doing things that you haven't even done. And then lastly, he destroys, or he attempts to destroy. And you see that alluded to in John chapter 10, verse 10. What he will do is he will tempt you, he will try and bring these lies and these accusations into your life, and he will try and destroy every part of what God is doing in you, in your marriage, in your family, in your church. So he blinds, he lies, he accuses, and he attempts to destroy. This is what he does. And he uses people to do that. He uses the world system to do that. He uses his demons to do that. And he will do that up until the time Jesus comes back. Up until the time Jesus comes back, Satan will act in this way. He will, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be this adversary, the devil, that walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sobering stuff. But it, it just has never ceased to surprise me, brothers and sisters, about how naive I've been about the work of the enemy in my life. You know, there's been times in my Christian walk where I've had weeks where I've been depressed, I've been low, I've felt condemned, I've felt accused, and I'm there thinking, Lord, what is going on? And it's almost at that time the Spirit says to me, well, could it be that the devil's trying to attack you? And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about him. Has anyone had that experience before? Or the other thing that we can do, or the other thing I've done, is you can over demonize everything. You can think that everything is of the devil. Everything is demonic. You might wake up in the morning and have a headache. That's demonic. Or you have a bad day. That's demonic. Or that, that uh, fence over there is painted black. That is demonic. Anyone had that experience as well? We over-demonize things. And we love to do this. 
We love to either over-demonize things or not think about Satan and demons at all. And that leaves us very naive and in a very uh, dangerous position. There was a um, famous Chinese general who lived about 600 years before Jesus was born. Uh, I can't pronounce his name, but one of our Chinese brothers or sisters would be able to. But he wrote one of the most important books in military history called The Art of War. And I just want to quote him from one of his chapters. It should be up on the screen. He said, It is said that if you know your enemies and you know yourself, you will not be imperiled in a hundred battles. If you do not know your enemies but do know yourself, you will win one and lose one. If you do not know your enemies nor yourself, you will be imperiled in every single battle. Now, when I quote him, I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord, but he's got some very good common sense. Because what he's saying is, if you know your enemy, the battle will not overtake you. But if you don't know your enemy, the battle will overtake you, and you will become paralyzed in spiritual warfare. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to get at in this verse. He does not want these believers to be naive about their enemy. They knew about spiritual darkness. Remember, these believers were those in Acts 19 who threw their books of sorcery on the fire. They also saw those Jewish exorcists who tried to use the name of Jesus to cast out a demon, and it didn't work. They knew about spiritual darkness, but like us, they were susceptible to be naive. And Paul's saying, don't be naive. Know your enemy. Your enemy is a liar. He is an accuser. He will attempt to destroy your life. Don't forget that. It is not the people in front of you. It is what's behind them. And he's saying, don't be naive. And he says to us today, brother, sister, do not be naive about your enemy. Because if you're not naive and you know how he works you will be able to take a stand and put on the armor of God fruitfully. So that's the first thing. The second thing is in verses 13 to um, 18. I'm just going to read verse 13. He says there, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore. Now in that verse... He's pretty much repeating what he said already in verses 10 and 11. He says to them, take up the whole armor of God. And then he says to them twice in verse 13 to stand, to take a stand. And then once in verse 14 to take a stand. But what's really important for you to see here, you won't see this in the English, is that the way that these words are written in this verse are different to the way that they're written in verses 10 and 11. It shows us something very important about walking in spiritual warfare wisely. In verses 10 and 11, when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, i.e. take a stand, and when he says, put on the whole armor of God, they're written in a way, listen, where you're supposed to look back to something that's been provided for you in the past by God. We're supposed to look back to the cross. Why do we look back to the cross Why is he wanting them to look back to the cross? Well, because listen, at the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and his demons once and for all and forever. Hallelujah. That is what happened at the cross. And we see that 
written in two verses. Firstly, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. It says, In you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross, or in it, the cross. And then in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says this. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. These verses teach that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. And there are two ways that he did that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But before we talk about those two ways, we have to say something about Satan with regard to sin. Because the Bible teaches, listen brothers, brothers and sisters, that before the cross, Satan was, in a sense, the captain over all humanity with regard to sin. He had the power of death in his hands, which means that he had the claim of the eternal death of every single human being because every single human being had followed him in his rebellion against God and would do from that moment onwards. But what happened at the cross? Listen, Jesus died, and then what did he, what did he do? He rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, what did he do? He defeated death. He defeated the wages of sin, which is death. And in doing that, he defeated and destroyed the power that Satan had over death. This is the first way that he defeats him. So in a nutshell, what that means is that when Jesus died and rose again, he took away from Satan the claim that he would have over the eternal death of all of those who would believe in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. But then there's a second way that Jesus defeats Satan, and that is that when he rose again, what did he then do? He ascended into heaven. And in Ephesians 1, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he has now got authority and reigns over every principality, over every power, over every ruler. That means that Jesus reigns over Satan and his demons. Do you understand that? It means that Satan cannot do anything to you without first going through Jesus. Hallelujah. But there's something else as well, because the Bible says that when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. That, do you know what that means, brothers and sisters? That means you share in the victory that Jesus has over the devil and over his demons. This is why, listen, we can look back to the cross and we can confidently say, Jesus, you defeated Satan at that cross, so therefore I can be strong in you. I can be strong in the strength of your might. I can take up the whole armour of God that you used to defeat Satan. That's what Paul is saying in verses 10 and 11. We look back to that victory. But it's different in verse 13. Because in verse 13, 
The way he writes, take up the whole armour of God, take a stand, it's not looking back to something. It's actually walking actively in that reality. Walking in that reality in your own responsibility, making a choice to do it, it speaks of being active. You actually taking a stand. You actually putting on the whole armour of God. A good way to think about this or what Paul's trying to get at here, is a bit like how you teach your children to, to ride a bike for the first time. In the beginning, you're there, aren't you, with your child. They're on the bike. You're holding the bike. You're getting them to go along. And you do that over and over and over again. But there comes a point, listen, where they have to make a choice to do it themselves. Where they have to, in a sense, let go of you holding them and make a choice to ride that bike on their own, balancing on their own. You're still there for them, you're watching them, you're ready to help them at any point, but they have to make that choice. And this is what he's saying here. Listen, God has provided you everything in the cross. He's held you there at the cross to give you victory over the enemy. But there has to come a point where you make a choice, knowing what he's provided for you, to walk in it, to walk in taking the stand against the devil, to walk in taking up the whole armour of God. Again, another way to think about this is, if you imagine, like we do a lot of the time in Great Britain, that there's a lot of rain and wind outside your house, and you need to go out to the shop or something to go and get some milk that you forgot to buy. And what do you do? Well, you put a jacket on, don't you? You put a jacket on knowing that when you go out, you're going to be battered by that wind. You're going to have to take a lot of, a lot of rain upon yourself. That's When we put that jacket on, it's, it's in a spiritual sense, we're called to put on Christ. We're called to put on that victory that Christ had. But then we go outside in the storm. And when we go outside in the storm with that jacket on, what do we have to do? Well, sometimes we have to take a stand. We have to dig our feet in and say to the wind, you're not going to defeat me. You're not going to blow me over. And that's what we have to do in spiritual warfare. With that jacket of Jesus Christ on, we have to take a stand and say to Satan, you're not going to blow me over. You're not going to push me over. I am going to stand against you and I'm going to put on the armour that protects me against you. Now the problem that we have in this is like most things, we deviate to one thing or another. There'll be Christians in here who like to just rest in Jesus, just rest in his victory at the cross by faith and not really do anything, not really be active. But then there's Christians in here who love to be active. I've got to do, 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 do. But you struggle to rest in what Jesus has provided for you at the cross. And it's the same here. Some of us like to rest in Jesus' victory over Satan some of us like to say, I'm going to put on the armour of God, but they both have to be together. You have to have that foundation of Jesus' victory by faith, and you have to walk actively in that provision. As it says in James 4, 7a, it's only then when we do those two things that we can resist the devil truly and know that he will flee from us. So, we haven't even got to the interesting bit yet. So let's go to that. Because then he goes on 
in verse 14 to verse 17, and he speaks about this armor of God. And I'm going to just say from the, from the start, when we go through this, this is going to be a bit of a marathon. <laughs> you are going to have to persevere as we go through this, because there's quite a lot that we could go through. Uh, each one of these could be a sermon in themselves. So please stay with me. But before we go into it, I want to say three things about this armor. The first is this, that when Paul speaks about this armor in these verses, he is thinking about a Roman soldier. He's thinking about the the armor that a Roman soldier would wear. And that shouldn't surprise us because he saw Roman soldiers a lot on his travels, but also he was probably handcuffed to one at the time that he wrote this letter. So he would have had that soldier there, and he had a lot of inspiration to write this text. The second thing I want to say is that when Paul writes about this armour, he's thinking individualistically, but he's also thinking corporately. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that we are all individually members of one body. That means you all have an individual identity in Christ, but you're part of a bigger reality. You're part of the church, the body of Christ. And if one part of the body of Christ doesn't take on the armour of God, the whole church suffers. As it says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all of the members suffer at the same time. And then the third thing I want to say is that when he lists these, these, these armours, he's not giving us a choice to pick and choose which one we put on. We have to put all of them on. It's not like when you go to the cinema and you do pick and mix before you go into your film. You have to take it all on for it to be effective. But he does say that the most important one is in verse 16, the shield of faith. He says, above all, take the shield of faith. So I'll deal with that one last. So let's go through them. So firstly, he says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now what he's talking about here is a belt. Uh, the belt that the Roman soldier would wear around his midriff to hold his uniform in place, a bit like how we wear a belt now. And he's saying that the belt that he wants us to put on is the belt of truth. So what truth is is he speaking of there? I think he's speaking of the whole truth of the Scriptures, but more specifically, I think he's talking about the truth that he's laid down in this epistle about salvation about being in the church, about behavior in the church. And he says, if we do that, we will have that stability. We will have that belt around our waist. Now, you can know in this place this morning if you're weak in this area of your armor because there just seems to be in your life a tendency to be unstable. Over your life, you've potentially, maybe for the whole of your Christian life, or maybe even just recently, you just go through these times of feeling really stable as a Christian, and then you feel really unstable as a Christian, where it could be that you don't have the belt of truth on. And because you don't have the belt of truth on, Satan can see that, and he's attacking you in that area. And if you're in that position this morning, God would say to you, you need to go back to the Scriptures, you need to go back to the whole of the Scriptures, but specifically the truth in Ephesians, you need to read it, you need to study it, you need to pray for it, you need to meditate on it, and put on this belt of truth. He then says, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So secondly, he talks about the part of the armour in the Roman soldiers that would have been on the chest. And in, in the Roman soldiers' uniform, if I remember, there would have been two straps that would have come up the back, over the shoulders, and there would have been a clip to put this breastplate on. And that would have protected the soldier's heart and lungs, the organs that are vital to the body. And Paul is saying that we need to put on, listen, the breastplate of righteousness on a daily basis. What does that mean? Well, it means that daily you put on the fact that you have been given, listen, the gift of Jesus' righteousness when you believed in him. The only merit that you have before God is not any righteousness of your own, but it is the righteousness of Christ. And you have to put that on on a daily basis. But it's not just that. It's not just a positional righteousness. It's a functional righteousness. Because look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. He says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And when he speaks of faith and love there, he's speaking about this breastplate of righteousness, and he's speaking about activity, he's speaking about the activity of faith and love. And as we put on this gift of Jesus' righteousness, I believe the Spirit will bring forth the functional righteousness in our hearts so that we are of faithfulness, we are loving Christians, and we will put on this functional righteousness as well. Now, you can know that you're weak in this area of armour where, again, you have this kind of continuous struggle with a feeling of deadness in your life as a believer. You know you're saved, you know you believe in Jesus Christ, but you just have a lack of life in Christ. You just have a lack of vitality in Christ. You feel that you are, there's a bit of deadness there. And it may be because you're not putting on the gift of righteousness that Jesus has given you. It may be because you're living in sin and you're not living in repentance. And because of that, you don't have that breastplate on. And Satan can see that. He's attacking you in that area and he's making you feel dead. And Jesus would say to you in this place this morning that if you know that that is you, you need to go back to the great blessings of the gospel. You need to go back to knowing that when you believe you're given Jesus' righteousness. You need to go back to the promise that when you become a believer, you are given the power to say no to sin. And you can live a life of ever-increasing righteousness. Go back to that and put on the breastplate. Then in verse 15, thirdly, he says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, we need to know that in this time, in the time that Paul wrote this, footwear would have been much, much more important to these people than it is to us. You know, I went to, I think it was um, Sports Direct or something like that the other week, and I was quite startled that I went in there and there were like literally a hundred trainer types on the wall. And listen, you need to know that that would not have been the case back then in this time. Footwear would have been more expensive. It would have been more difficult to get a hold of. It would have been easy to wear out and get destroyed. And so therefore, 
it was very important that everyone prepared their footwear well for their activities. A Roman soldier would have had to prepare his sandals, particularly for battle, because if he didn't prepare them, his sandals would have fallen off and he would have been killed. And Paul's saying here, listen, we need to prepare our spiritual feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That means that every area of our life as a believer, our relationships, our ministry, our service in the church, our work, our dealing with the outside world needs to be prepared with the gospel of peace. The motive, the uh, reason we do things has to be because of the gospel of peace. It has to be because Jesus, as Stephen was saying earlier, died on the cross to reconcile people to himself, to bring peace to people. That peace has to be our motivation in everything that we do. Again, you can know that you're weak in this area, that you're not putting on this armour because on a daily basis you just have this sense that you're stagnant. You're not really moving anywhere. You're not moving forward in your relationships. You're not moving forward in your ministry. You're not moving forward maybe in what God's called you to do or at your work. You are stagnant because maybe you are not preparing your spiritual feet with the gospel of peace. And because of that, the enemy can see that he is attacking you your, your spiritual feet cannot move and you are being knocked over and you cannot move. And again, Jesus would say to you in this place that if you feel like that, if you're stagnant in your life as a believer, go back to the simplicity of the gospel. Go back to Jesus being crucified for sin, that he did that to bring peace. Go back and question what your motives are in your ministry in your calling, in your work, in your relationships, and prepare it instead with the gospel of peace. I know this is tough, brothers and sisters. I know I'm being a bit heavy. I can see in your faces that you're struggling with this. But keep, keep with me. This is difficult, but it is good for us. It's good for us to hear this truth. Then he goes, I'm just going to jump down to verse 17, and he says, and take the helmet of salvation. So this is the fourth item of armour. So he's gone from the feet up to the head. And what does a helmet protect? Well, it protects your brain. And the brain is the part of your body which is most clear about every process that takes place in your body. Every, every process in your body starts in the brain with a nerve impulse. And if you don't wear a helmet in battle and you get one blow to the head, you die instantaneously because all that clarity about all the processes in your body stop. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying that he wants us to put the helmet of salvation on the area of our soul that is, in a sense, the most clear and is the area where all good works and all righteousness starts. He is saying to us that he wants us to put the helmet of salvation on our renewed nature, on that part of our spirit that has been regenerated. He unpacks this a little bit more for us. Again, if we go back to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.8, where 
where he says, after putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and he says, and, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So you put on the helmet of salvation when you put on the hope of your salvation. And what is the hope of your salvation in this place this morning? It is that you are going to go to glory. You are going to be with Jesus Christ forever in a place that's without sin and is in a place of absolute righteousness. And he said, you need to put this hope around your renewed nature. You need to put this hope around that area that is clear about the gospel and wants to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Again, you can know that you are weak in this area, that you're not putting on the helmet, if you are just, again, on a regular basis, not really feeling that clear about the gospel. You feel confused about the gospel. Maybe you are dry in the fruitfulness of what God's called you to. Well, God would say to you, if you're in that place this morning, go back to your destination that you're going to. Go back and meditate on the fact that you are going to go to glory if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So having done that, he then says, in verse 17, he takes his uh, ideas away from things that defend us to things that we use to attack the enemy. And he says, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So he goes away from defense, and he goes to attack. And he's saying here that you attack Satan you attack demons with the word of God. And you see this very clearly in Jesus' life. Do you remember when he was in the desert? And he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And what did he do to Satan every time Satan tried to tempt him? He responded with the word of God. Why did he respond with the word of God? Well, because Satan does not have any answer to the word of God. The Word of God is breathed by God. The Word of God is perfect. The Word of God says something and it will happen. Satan has no defense when you speak the Word of God. And if Jesus did it, then we certainly need to take up the Word of God and use it to attack the enemy. Don't attack the enemy with your emotion. Don't attack the enemy with the church pastor that you're under. Don't attack the enemy with the denomination of churches that you attend. Attack the enemy with the word of God because he's got no defense against it. You can know that you're weak in this area when you have something that I would call the bullied, timid Christian syndrome. Do you remember when you were young and you used to watch films, which were often American films, and they would, there would be a scene maybe where there's um, a child or a teenager being bullied in the school, and that child would often be in the corner with their hands like this, face down, not able to respond to any of the bullying that they have got. And Christians can be like that. Maybe you're in this place this morning and you know that you are like that, that Satan attacks you all the time and you cannot respond to him. You have that timidity. You are a bullied, timid Christian. And if you're in that place this morning, we need to respond to that state that you're in with a famous line that Prime Minister Thatcher used in the 1980s in the Parliament where she said, no, no, no. 
No. Do you remember that? You need to say to Satan in this place this morning, if you are a bullied, Christ, uh, timid Christian, no to being timid anymore. No to being bullied anymore. No to not taking up the word of God anymore. Yes to being victorious in Christ. Yes to your defeat at the cross and yes to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, take up this word. Let it sink into your heart. Meditate on it. Ask God to help you. It is difficult to hold the sword sometimes, but you can do it with his help. And then lastly, we're nearly there. The sixth item is the shield of faith. In verse 16 he says, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now you have to ask yourself the question, why is the shield of faith the most important part of the armour? Is it because it was the largest part of the armour that the soldier had? Is it because it's mobile and you can move it around? Is it that our faith can get so large and be so mobile that you could just whoosh it about like a power and just defeat Satan? I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. I think the reason why the shield of faith is the most important armour to take up is, listen, because faith is in your life. I'll say that again. It's because saving faith is in your life. Now, when you look back in church history, all orthodox theologians, and I don't say orthodox because of Eastern Orthodoxy, I should say that because of our, our recent past, all orthodox theologians who've taught the truth would say that faith, saving faith, starts with God. It's initiated by God. Whether you come from a reformed background and you believe that faith is all of God, and it is a gift that are given to the elect, and you don't have any choice, or whether you are from a non-reformed background and you believe that faith does come from God, but you do have a choice in receiving it or not, the, the common thing there is it starts with God. God initiates faith in people. And if you're in this place this morning and you believe simply that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again on the third day, you have saving faith. And if you have saving faith present in your life, listen, you can know that you belong to God. You can know that you are part of the elect people of God. And because of that, you can know that he promises you to get to glory. He promises you to be made into the image of Christ. He promises you to use you in fruitfulness if you will just obey him. And this is how we use the shield of faith. When Satan says to you, you're pretty unstable, aren't you, Adam? Yeah, I know I am, but I still believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. You're pretty stagnant, Adam, in your life as a believer. You're not really doing much. Yeah, well, maybe, but I still believe in Jesus Christ and the fact that he died on the cross and rose again on the third day. You don't have much life, do you, Adam, in your, in your walk with God? Maybe, but I still believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose again on the third day. And listen, if it's truly saving faith that you have in your heart, you will always be able to respond to Satan like that. Because true saving faith perseveres on to the end. You will always be able to say, yep, 
Maybe you'll say that to me, but I put my shield up and say, I still believe that Jesus died for me. So therefore, brothers and sisters, take up this shield. If you have saving faith in this place this morning, you are able to take this shield of faith by simply saying, I believe in Jesus Christ, in him crucified for my sin. So there we have, brothers and sisters, the armour of God. And I don't have a magic method or like a six-point thing that you follow to do all of this that I've spoken in the last five, ten minutes. All I'm going to say to you very simply is, now that you've heard about the armour of God, take it up. Take it up by faith in prayer on a daily basis. It's not on my authority that I say that, it's on the authority of Jesus Christ because this word assumes that you can take it up. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're able to do that. So take it up. And when we do so, we will walk in spiritual warfare wisely. Now, our last section in verses 18 and 19, I'm just going to read those verses again. It says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, in these two verses, Paul is wanting these Ephesian believers to just not to just think about themselves in taking up the armour of God. He's wanting them to think about the whole church. And he wants them specifically to pray, to make supplication, which means to, to request on someone else's behalf. He wants us to do that being watchful with perseverance. And he wants us to pray specifically for all the saints. That's not just the saints in your family, not just your husband or your wife or your children. It's not just that your friends who are Christians. It's not just people in this church. It is the whole church in the whole entire world, all the saints. He's saying, I want you to pray for them. And not only that, he wants them to pray for church leaders. He says here in verse 19, pray for me that I might be able to speak. And I think the application is pray for your church leaders. And what does he want them to pray? Well, he wants them to pray, I think, for all the saints that we would truly take a stand and pick up the whole armour of God, to be fruitful in what he's actually telling us to do. And then in verse 19, he's saying he wants them to pray for church leaders so that church leaders will keep on preaching the word of God. Now, to highlight why he's doing this, I want to ask you a very serious question. I want to ask you, when was the last time you prayed for anyone in this fellowship for them to be fruitful in spiritual warfare? When was the last time you prayed for John or myself to keep preaching the word of God? And I have to say, to my own shame, the answer that I would say to that question is, is not very good. I don't always pray for you guys' spiritual warfare. I, I repent of that. I don't always pray for John when he's preaching. 
What about you? Do you do that? Because listen, Satan knows that when we pray for our brothers and sisters in spiritual warfare, when we pray for church leaders, we are entering into the will of God. It is God's will for his church to take a stand and put up the armor of God. It is God's will for this word to be preached to his people because that's what his people needs. So if he can stop you or distract you or make you not even think about other people in the fellowship or make you not even think about me or John when we're preaching, then he's in a sense one. And he hinders the church in this way. It's a very important thing that we realize what Paul is saying here. It's an extremely important exhortation to take up this call to pray for each other and for our church leaders. You might be thinking in this place, well, okay, then that's all well and good you saying that, but it seems really overwhelming for me to pray for the whole church and to even pray for you and John because, you know, sometimes you're not that approachable, Adam. Sometimes you come across as being quite direct. I I don't feel I can pray for you. And I know that sometimes. But listen, that's why he says here, you do it in the Spirit. It's the Spirit of the living God who will lead you to know how to pray for his saints. It is the Spirit of the living God who will show you how to pray for John or myself or whoever else you are listening to who's preaching the Word of God. So let him do that. On a daily basis, come to him and say, Lord, Spirit, lead me in these prayers. And when you do that, you will be doing the most Christ-like thing with regard to spiritual warfare. Because what's he describing here? He's describing intercession. He's describing what we do when we intercede for other saints and for people who are preaching the word of God. And that's what Jesus does. Listen, all the time. For every single one of you in here who believes, listen to what it says in Hebrews 7, 25. It says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then lastly, in 1 John 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus intercedes for his people, and he wants to use each one of you to intercede for other believers. It's the most Christ-like way that you can respond to spiritual warfare for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us do it. So we've seen today this exhortation to take a stand and put on the whole armour of God. We've seen that we do that when we know our enemy, when we walk wisely in warfare, and when we think about other people and not just ourselves. And I want to take you back to the trampoline to be a bit light-hearted at the end of this message. And I'll say to you again, do you want to be a Christian who's flat on that net, unable to move unable to do anything, paralyzed, or do you want to be that Christian who's taking a stand and is not going to be pushed over? If you want to be the latter, then I would suggest that you take this scripture, maybe listen to my message again if you want to, but in your own time, go through it and pray through it and take a stand 
and put on the whole armor of God.